Turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. And tonight we're going to see that the Lord is determined to judge His people for their sin. In the first uh, part of the first chapter, we saw um, what the foreign nations did against God. And then verse two, chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 6, we saw what Israel did against their God. And now in these chapters, we're going to see what God now will do to these covenant breakers. What God will do to His people Israel. This passage here, chapter 7-9, through nine, is directed primarily at His people Israel. And He's going to show that they're going to be wiped out completely. And the only remnant that there will be will be a small number from Judah. And that tribe is the tribe in which Jesus arises from which Jesus arises, where He comes and He sets up His uh, throne or continues, I guess, the throne of David and now reigns as King over all the earth and will one day reign as King here on the earth uh, in the Millennial Kingdom. So uh, let's begin reading with uh, chapter 7, verse 1. And we'll see this fir- the first two visions that are set out for us in these chapters. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand, for he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And they consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. What we have here in these last three chapters are five visions that Amos receives. And these are visions that are used in order to, uh, to show a point to Amos and to the people of Israel. This first vision is found in verses 1 through 3. And I think the primary purpose of these first two visions is to show that the power of intercessory prayer, the power of intercessory prayer. In verse 1, God uh, brings about this threat of starvation, that the locusts would come in and wipe out all the vegetation. And as that began to happen, we see in verse 2 that Amos pleads. He, 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 uh, he begs God. And it came about... Verse 2, that when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. Amos begs for God to stop. To, In fact, he actually begs for forgiveness, that God would forgive these people. You see what he says there? Lord God, please pardon. That is, forget their sin. Remember it no longer. But what you notice in verse 3 is that God does not forgive them Rather, he just stops what he's doing. It says the Lord changed his mind about this. It says nothing of his forgiveness. He only stops the judgment temporarily. And then the very next verse, the next judgment starts up, the vision of fire. And this is, as we saw, fire is representative of complete devastation, destruction, as if a, a, an enemy came into your land and set the whole city on fire, including the fortresses. This is what God is, is doing to these people. He's saying, I'm going to, to use this, this fire to um, lick up the groundwater that supplies the springs and the wells. And in verse 4, he says, even the great deep, that is the Mediterranean Sea, will be dried up. This is how severe this fire is. And then Amos again begs for mercy in verse 5. This time he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He just asks God to stop. Verse 5, Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And so the threat of fire is stopped. In verse 6, God says, Alright, I'll, I'll listen to you, Amos. I will respond. And we should not be surprised by this because our God, according to Joel chapter 2, verse 13, and Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, our God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
He is quick to become compassionate to His people. And so again, here God stops, but He does not grant them forgiveness. And what we should see from this is that that God answers intercessory prayer. That God longs for you to call on Him so that He can relent of what He has done. So that He can turn from the threat that He had had given to these people. Now, if God responds to intercessory prayer as He does here with Amos, then how do we balance this with a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 15? Let's turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 15, we have Samuel rebuking Saul. And in verse 29, Samuel says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie, that is God. God will not lie or change His mind, for He is not man that He should change His mind. So, if God answers prayer, if, if God in a situation like Amos where Amos begs mercy from him, if God changes his mind, or as we saw with with Jonah, that he relented, he he changed his mind, it seems like he changed what he was going to do, then how do we balance it with a, a text like this that says that God does not lie or change his mind because he's not like man? How do we balance the two? Well, it would be nice if God gave us every single thing that we asked for, wouldn't it? The problem with that, however, is that we don't know as much as God does. And that actually could be dangerous for us personally and specifically it could be dangerous for us spiritually. That if every time we wanted something, we asked God and He gave it to us. That would be foolish of God to do so. And so thankfully, God doesn't answer us every time. Rather, He looks at things from His perspective. He sees things from an uh, an uh, infinite mind and recognizes that we are finite and we're asking for something that does not fit under His plan. And so as a result, He will often say, no, that is not what is best for you. Similar to what a parent would do for his child. The point is not that God is cold and deterministic and some kind of mechanical force that's up there and says, I'm going to do as I please. No, we see from this passage in Amos that God is a personal God, that He wants to answer the requests of His people. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says that ask whatever you wish and God will give it to you. Whatever is according to God's will and He will do it. So God wants to answer our requests. But how can He if He's already got His plan determined? Well, I think God's plan, we have to understand, includes our asking. God's plan includes our asking. So I think Luther had it right. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Uh Uh-uh. And then if we just pray enough, then we'll stop God from doing what He's planning to do or start God doing something that He wasn't planning to do. It's not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. And so our job is to pray to Him. I mean, the, Jesus often reminded His his disciples that who, what kind of parents would not give a good gift to His children or to His child if He, asked, if he simply asked Him? But that's often where we stop. We don't ask. And so we should take from Amos these first several verses, that God is a personal God and He wants to answer our requests and we need to ask Him. Certainly we need to keep that in perspective with the fact that God has a plan and that we need to be praying according to His desire and His will. Alright, back to Amos chapter 7 and now in verses 9 and 10, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verses 7 through 9, we have the next vision. This is the vision of the plumb line. Verse 7 says, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. 
The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? I said, A plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. So God shows that that uh, He responds to intercessory prayer in verses one through six, and now in verses seven, uh, chapter seven, verse seven, all the way till chapter nine, verse ten, we see the Lord's judgment of the wayward. The Lord's judgment is sure; it is it is going to happen. And so, what God does here is saying, "Okay, Amos, you've been praying for them to to be spared for the, for this to stop, but now here, let me show you the problem." I'm going to I'm going to drop a plumb line down, and I want to show you how crooked Israel really is. Okay, here's my standard. Drops the plumb line. This is how they're set up now. See see how crooked they are. Where it should have been a straight wall because God had set up those standards. Now it it has been completely knocked off of kilter, and and it's out of plumb. It's crooked. And so God says rightly. At the end of verse 8, I will spare them no longer. Do you see it, Amos? Do you recognize why I'm doing what I'm doing? They have, they have disobeyed me and have done it with heartless attitudes and now it's time for them to be judged. And the sword of judgment, verse 9, was going to come from the great kingdom of, Babel, of uh, Assyria. Excuse me. Syria would come and wipe them out in 722 B.C. And so, God is a God who, yes, He is forbearing. He is slow to anger, as I said earlier. But if God were endlessly forbearing, what would the world be like? What would sin be like if God were endlessly forbearing? If He He always allowed sin to take place. Well, what would your kids be like if, if you were like that? If you always allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. God says there is a time when judgment has to happen. And the Bible says that, that yes, God is good. God is a forgiving God. But there is a limit to it. There is a time when He brings down judgment. Now, if God were... Let's go to the opposite extreme. Okay, God is endlessly forbearing. The opposite extreme would be if you were instantaneously just, then like the psalmist, we would say, if you took a record of sins, O God, who could stand? If God were, were quick to judge, if He were instantaneously going to, to force His will to be done, who would be able to stand against Him? Would, would any of us be here right now? And so we have these two extremes, which neither of these are, are the extreme, the extremes of our God. He is not endlessly forbearing, where He will allow sin to forever go as it, as it pleases, even in our own lives. And He is not a God who is quick to judge and quick to bring down punishment, although He has every right to do so. And so in these things, in these two extremes, we see something of a loving God. One who cares about His people. Who's not just uh, coldly or harshly up in heaven going, they crossed me one too many times or that was it. That he, They crossed the line. No, God is, is a God of compassion. But there will be a day when all will be judged. When the sin of this world will be finally put to rest when God punishes all of the unrighteous, all those who have rejected Him as well as the angels, the, the demonic angels that have, led, that have led them astray. The reason that God has not destroyed Israel to this point was because He was a genuinely forbearing God. And so when we see God become like this, when He gets to the point where He says, all right, that's it, Israel, we should look at ourselves and say, we, sh- we should warn ourselves that we don't want to get to that place where God just turns us aside and is ready to bring judgment upon this us. And certainly, 
if we are in Christ, then we cannot, we should not fear judgment at all. Because all of our judgment has been placed upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has taken it all upon Him. Verses, seven, uh, verses 10 through 17 in chapter 7 is the defiance of Israel's leader. Israel was so uh, out of plumb that uh, their leaders were leading the people astray. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. So Amos gives Amaziah this warning and this is how Amaziah responds. Then Amaziah, verse 12, said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel for it is the sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by measuring line and you yourselves will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Amaziah is basically a poster child for what God was trying to say, what God was trying to show Amos. See? These people are so crooked. Do you see it, Amos? So Amos goes to this this priest of Bethel. He's a representative of Israel's religion, really. He goes up to this man and he says, here's what God has to say to you. And what is Amaziah? how does he reply? He said, get out of here, Amos. I don't need to hear it from you. Go back to where you came from in Judah. We don't need to hear this word from you. In fact, he questioned whether or not he was really a prophet. And Amos says, yes, indeed, I am a prophet. He said, I grew up as a herdsman and a grower of a sycamore tree, but God gave me His Word, verse 15. And he said, go prophesy to my people. And then Amos tries again. Here's the Word which God has said to you. This is what's going to happen. And then he lays out Amaziah's personal judgment, which was, verse 17, that his wife and uh, that his children would die and his wife would be reduced to prostitution in order to survive. Because Amaziah was going to be dead and his wife was going to have to figure out how to survive on her own and the land would be so desolate she would have to resort to such a a ridiculous form of life. And so really Amaziah becomes a representative of what Israel has been doing all along. And God says, Amos, this this is what Israel is like. Now in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14... God gives to Amos a vision of fruit, a vision of summer fruit. And uh, he's going to use this as an example of what's going to happen to Israel. Verse 1, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds because because of this. Will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in the broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning 
And all your songs into lamentation, I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on everyone's head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. He goes on to talk about a further judgment. We'll, we'll save that here for uh, just a few minutes. But what God is saying here in, in chapter 8 and verse 1 is, or, or this illustration that He's using of a basket of fruit is He's saying, listen, the fruit here is ripe, just like Israel is ripe for judgment. It's time. They have come to a point where it's time for me to take up this harvest of judgment. And He, he explains to Amos and Amos to Israel, uh, Amos does to Israel in verses 4 through 6 the nature of their sin, what exactly they did. This is what the people of Israel were saying. Verse 5 When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market, and so on? And then they go into all this type of cheating that they were involved in of the, the people out there in the market square. This new moon festival was celebrated uh, each month, much like the Sabbath. And it was a day that was a day of rest. It was meant to be a day that where they would focus on God. And these people were so eager for this day to be over. That's why they say, when will the new moon be over so that we can... And then they go into all their business practices that they were involved in so that they could get back to making money. They couldn't wait to get done with worship. Thankfully, we don't have that problem today. When we come to worship, we never wish the service would be over, right? So we'll just... Uh, We'll pass over that because that's just something that Israel deals with, right? But uh, but what they were doing at the end of verse 5 is they were being dishonest in their measures. Their bushels, they were making them smaller than they really were. Their shekels, that is the money that they were using, were bigger. And so they were getting their living from dishonest measures and then verse 6 from dishonest goods. They would take the chaff, which was the, the part that you would throw up in the air and let the wind take away. They would take the chaff and they would mix it in with the wheat in order to cheat the buyer so that it felt like they had a bigger basket of, of goods there when really it was a lot of waste and refuse. So God talks about the certainty of His judgment that He will turn them upside down, verses 7-10, through 10, and that in in verse 10, that this will be a time of mourning for you, Israel. That there will be a day when people will cry out. They will wail. They will put on sackcloth. The idea of grieving or mourning because of the, the pain and the devastation that comes upon them. And perhaps the worst judgment of all is found in verses 11-14. through 14. Let's read them together. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Amaziah, in chapter 7, verses 10-15, through 15, asked for silence. He said, Amos, uh, you say you're speaking on behalf of God, but I don't want to hear it. He asked for silence. And so did the wealthy merchants in chapter 2, verse 12. They said, no, we don't want to hear the prophets. We don't want to see all these Nazarites that are supposed to be our example. We don't want to hear about it. Okay? We don't need God right now. We're doing fine. And normally, in times of distress, Israel would turn to the Lord. You, you see this in Judges over and over again after they were distressed and they were oppressed by the people around them. They would turn to God and cry out to Him, please send us a deliverer. And as a result, God would send a judge like we read about this morning. Samson was one of those judges who killed many of their enemies. Gideon was one of those judges. And God sent a deliverer. But now, God was going to be silent. That, that time in which they would regularly hear from the Word of the Lord would now be replaced with an eerie silence. 
he says, verse 11, that this won't be a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of God. This is perhaps the worst despair of all. The worst possible thing that could happen to any human being, that God would abandon them. It was a part of Job's torment. Remember? Job was longing for God to give me a word from you. God, talk to me. Tell me what's going on here. I just need you to speak. Tell me what's going on. And I, even if it could just be in an argument or something. But the heavens were silent, and as a result, it, it heightened, it multiplied Job's despair. And in a universe that is controlled by God, there can be nothing worse than being truly abandoned by God Himself. In fact, the worst of hell's torments is not going to be the pain. The worst of hell's torments is not going to be the fact that they can't be near friends and talking to other people. The worst will be that they cannot talk to God. That God will not talk to them. They are going to be completely abandoned by the Creator of all the universe. And yet the sad reality is that we who bear God's image go between fearing God and abandoning God ourselves and wanting to escape from His presence. We love when God comes to us in rescue, but we don't necessarily want God near us when we're straying from Him. When we're enjoying our sin. Turn back to Psalm chapter 31 if you would. David experienced this. This type of silence from God. Where it seemed like God was far away and He, he could not... He could, not got, he could not get the sense that God was near him. So he cries out for help in deep trouble. He hated the fact that God was away from him. And, and uh, before we read these last few verses here in Psalm uh, 31, let me just give you a little bit of background. David was a person who loved the presence of God. Except for at those times where, as I was saying earlier, that where he was involved in sin, when those during those times when he was sinning with Bathsheba or killing Bathsheba's husband, that wasn't a time necessarily that he wanted God's presence. Too often we we look to God when uh, when we when we want to, and we look the other way so that we can follow our own paths and reject God. And we want God to, to show His presence to us. And then we find ourselves in these desperate straits. And what a great blessing it is to have God respond to us in these times of despair. And David in this psalm says, I cry out for you. And then let's look at verses 22-24. And we see, we see David's frustration and then God's response. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you got His godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. David's experience here should prove to be an encouragement to us that even though he was in distress, the first part of this, this chapter, Psalm 31, that, that he felt as if God was far away from him. When he cried out to him, God came near. James talks about the same idea. He says, draw near to God and what will God do to you? He will draw near to you. And that is the joy that we can experience through Jesus Christ. But unfortunately for Israel, many of them were deep in sin and far away from a saving knowledge of God that comes through God for them. They, they were as reprobate as the people outside of, of the ethnic group of Israelites. And so we should long for God's presence always to be near us and for Him to respond even in times when times are going well as well as when they are not. Chapter 9 is the fifth vision. The first 
10 verses talk about the vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and He said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the seas and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is His name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. And the sinners of my people will die by the sword, those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. The Lord is standing beside the altar in verse 1, and He's commanding that this altar be thrown down. Remember in chapter 6, the God said, I am sick of your festivals, your new moon festivals, all your worship. It's disgusting to me. Because you're doing it with a wrong heart. You're doing it as you're, you're participating in all the sin. I don't want, to, I don't want to, to hear it anymore. So now it was time for God to judge them. And, he, and as He has said in chapters 7 and 8, I will spare you no longer. He would chase them into exile to a point where He would destroy them. In verses 2-4 through four of chapter 9, He says, none of them will escape. And we should not be surprised by this. Psalm chapter 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your love? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of hell, you're there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the earth, to out to the depths of the sea, you are there. God, God is not someone from whom we can escape. Jonah learned this. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1-3, through three, he thought he could get away. If he could just get geographically as far away from what God wanted him to do, then he would be fine. But what Israel was going to find out was that, that no one can escape from God. When God is ready to, to uh, bring somebody back to Him, or in this case to judge them, He will find them. But in verses 5-9, through nine, we see something of some, a, a little bit of hope glimmer of hope that God will restore a remnant. That He will save this small group of people. And they wouldn't necessarily come from the tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom, but rather they would come from Judah, as I mentioned earlier. He says, um, verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. God was going to spare a remnant. And He only did that because He had a specific promise with His his child Abraham that through His seed, through Abraham's seed, Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we are part of that blessing. Not because we are of Jewish descent, but rather because we had a Jewish person, Jesus Christ, be a substitute for us. A man from the house of Israel rose up and died for us, became our sacrifice. Verses 11 through 15, we see a promise of restoration in the millennial kingdom. Verse 11 In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by My name declares the Lord who does this. 
Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. The millennial blessings would await the final remnant, the final faithful remnant, those people whom God had saved. And and one day, Amos was saying, on behalf of God, he was saying the Messiah would reign from the, the throne of David. Verse 11, And that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David to the point where Israel would never be uprooted again. And it would bring about great prosperity according to verse 13 and 14. There would be a time where the plowman will overtake the reaper. That is, the the people are still bringing in the harvest and the plowman's ready to start plowing the field again for the next uh, sowing of, of the seed. There's going to be so much abundance they can't even bring all the harvest in. It's taking them too long to bring it in to the point where the plowman is ready to, to plow the, the field for the next, um, the next growth of crops. And it says, The treader of grapes, him who sows seed, and the mountains will drip sweet wine, and so on. The, the idea there is that during the millennial kingdom, God's uh, Jesus' 1,000-year reign on this earth, it will be a time of great prosperity. There will be uh, no infertility when it comes to the crops. There will be a time of great prosperity that God will bless. So Amos, the book of Amos is a prophecy of judgment on God's people. There are two things that, that I think we can learn from Israel's failures. Number one, the fear of punishment is a warning to repent. Have you repented from your sin? Have you turned from it and turned in faith to Jesus Christ? Because here's your warning. God has given you His words. He's going to pour out His wrath on the nations, on all those who oppose Him. So, so are you opposing Him or have you accepted His Son, Jesus Christ? You can't accept God unless you've accepted His Son. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. Pagan nations will be held accountable by God. They're, they're not given a free pass. Even the chosen nation of God is not given a free pass. They still are responsible. In fact, in many ways, Israel was even more responsible. Remember in chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I chosen of all the families in the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. They had been given a great privilege and yet they wasted it. They squandered it. So many of them rejected God, particularly in this day. These people were more concerned about their own well-being than about serving God. And in a world under a curse, the world that we live in, we must uh, grasp that punishment that steers us back to God is always a good thing. What is it that God's doing in your life? Is He trying to get your attention? Certainly, He will not punish you as He did with these people if you're in Christ. But there is a sense in which God is our Father and He punishes those whom He loves. Not punishes, maybe uh, corrects those He loves as we see in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And if it leads us back to repentance, that's a good thing. So any time that we see that God is working in our lives, we should turn to Him and say, God, like, like, like David said in Psalm 19, God, reveal to me my hidden faults. What, what is it that I've sinned, I've done against You? I, I see all these things in front of me that I've done. It's pretty obvious. But there's other things that my heart is deceived and, and I don't see them. And You need to make them obvious to me. And you know, God will do that. God speaks to us through His Word. He reveals sin to us through His Word. Are you allowing Him to do that? The fear of punishment is a warning to repent. Number two, a lack of devotion to God's Word is one step toward losing it. 
A lack of devotion to God's Word is one step toward losing it. Look again at chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. This is what I was talking about this morning when Jesus when uh, Jesus was teaching his disciples Mark chapter 4 verse 25 he says whoever has even more will be given to him but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. A lack of devotion to God's word is one step toward losing it completely to the point where God will no longer speak because our hearts have become become so hardened to his truth that we don't want it and and oftentimes this is hard for us to, to understand and hard for us to believe but this is true oftentimes God gives us what we want and our hearts full of sin often want him to be quiet and so we cannot allow that to happen we cannot allow our sinful heart to overtake us And obviously, if we're in Christ, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So He will not allow that to happen. But our responsibility is to constantly be responding to the Word. It's the idea of, uh, like um, some of these savings accounts that you may have at your work, that if you don't use it by the end of the year, what happens? You lose it. You heard of those savings accounts? We used to have one of those. And there was a time where we had, uh, um, I forget how much it was, 30 or $40 left in the account. And we had to use it by the end of the year. And so I, I uh, hustled on the last couple of days before the end of the year to hurry up and spend that money. Make sure that we did not lose it because it would be gone. And the covenant people in Amos Day are, are, are content not to regulate their lives by God's revelation. As a result, they were going to lose it. And the point is that people who do not devote themselves to the Word of God eventually lose them. And the loss is is catastrophic. And the only analogy that that does it justice is what God gives here. It's a famine. It's a time in which people are now starving for God's Word. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther in Germany and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and John Calvin in France were being used of God to reform the church. There was a time when when people in that day and churches in general were cold to God's Word. In fact, they were more concerned about what the Pope had to say and what about the religious leaders had to say rather than what God's Word had to say. And over the previous several centuries, the church had had claimed to be the authority of God's truth rather than the Scriptures being the authority. And eventually the churches came to a point where they said that we can actually dispense God's grace. And that a common person could receive grace from God if you just gave more money to the church or if you fulfilled a certain number of acts. Well, as these three men were studying the Scriptures independently, not knowing each other at the time, they came to realize that grace was not dispensed by the church. Rather, it was only dispensed through Christ alone, by faith alone, through through the Word of God. And when the king of France, Francis I, heard of this Protestant Reformation that was going on, he initiated he initially tolerated these people and said, you know what, it's no big deal. We'll let them do what they, they want to do. We'll let them believe what they want to believe. But later on in his reign, he found out that the Protestants had rejected the Catholic Mass. And as a result, it, it brought up this huge uprising in, in the country of France, and he knew that that was going to affect his reign. So he decided to make it uh, a problem for these Protestant offenders. He, he decided to allow the French courts to prosecute them. Well, when this happened, John Calvin, who was in France at the time, he fled the country knowing that 
that there was going to be some major disruption. Many of his followers went with him. But others stayed behind. These people are known as the Huguenots. The Huguenots remained and they tried to hold the ground that, that the Scriptures are the authority and that the church cannot be dispensing grace. They cannot be teaching these things. This is wrong. Well, when uh, several leaders uh, had died, in fact, Henry II was more, after Francis I, he was more tolerant. He, when he died, the political strength that he had died with him. But the, the Catholic Church became furious because of these Protestant reformers. And they began inciting civil wars all over France. And the most intense one was what, what is now known as St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Massacre. This took place in August of 1572 where tens of thousands of Huguenots, Protestant reformers, had, were killed in cold blood. Perhaps up to 100,000 100, were slaughtered for their beliefs. And as a result, the Bible and the Reformation never took hold in the country of France. Look back in history and, and recognize that France did not receive the Scriptures as did Germany and some of these other places. Eventually over to England and then obviously to the New World which we have become recipients of. Why such extreme action by the French? It's because they didn't accept the Scriptures as the authority. They didn't want to hear God speak. And as a result, they didn't want to submit themselves to it and so God was saying in a way through history that I'm not going to give you the pleasure of hearing my word. If you're going to reject it, I'll take it back. Because to him who has been given, he has a great responsibility. And to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. You know, we have so many Bibles and so many resources in our days, don't we? In fact, I have a whole shelf full of Bibles. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, we claim to know God, we claim to, to desire His will, and yet we go long periods of time without even listening to Him. And when the time comes for the Word of God to be preached or to be taught, we check out mentally. When we have time for ourselves in the morning... We want to rush through it so that we can get done and over with. This is something we all struggle with, but, but we have to recognize that God is giving us a great blessing in allowing us to listen to Him. And we should not squander that privilege. Before long, the only time we use our Bible is to look up a single verse or to find a proof text in order to prove somebody wrong. We use it like a dictionary. And the whole time our heart is growing cold and colder to God's truth. And, and all the while we're growing in this hunger for something wise. Something to help me get through life. Something to make sense. We're, we're hungering for these things while we're letting the Scriptures just hang up there on the shelf. Just sit there. God has given us a great privilege and we ought to respond by loving and enjoying God's Word, being satisfied in it. And if not, then that hunger that we have for all this wisdom, if we do not pursue the Word, this hunger that we have for all the wisdom will never be satisfied. The only satisfaction comes when we get to know God through His Word, and we are sanctified by it. When we are changed by it, John 17, 17 says that your Word is truth. God, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, for your Word is truth. This is how we grow in godliness. This is how we fulfill that hunger we have for wisdom. This is how we grow in our love for God and others. It's through the Word. And we should never neglect it. Or else, God may, like Israel, show that show us that we never really were 
a part of His family. That we were really just going through all the motions. And as a result, He will bring a famine upon us with His Word. So every time you hear the Word, respond to it. And recognize that the only way that you can rightly respond to it is because Jesus Christ has given you the access to the Scriptures. That the Holy Spirit illumines your eyes, enlightens your mind, so that you can understand it and receive it as truth, and as a result, respond to it through faith and obedience. This is God's Word for us, and this is how we ought to respond. Let's ask God's help as we do that this week. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for how it instructs us as to how we ought to live and how we ought to love You. And although in many ways we are unlike Israel because many of them were were far from You spiritually, they were not true believers, in, in many other ways we are a lot like Israel because we have been given a great privilege and we sometimes squander that privilege. We admit that we are frail and we are quick to think of of other things other than Your truth. We fill up our days with, with all sorts of noise and pleasures that we, we long for so that we don't have to hear Your Word. We don't have to change. We don't have to think about our sin and how we ought to respond to You. Lord, Your Word is a lamp to our feet. And we take great joy in learning from it in seeing You revealed to us in it. In seeing Jesus Christ and His glorious light. And we want to spread that to all the people around us. We don't want to hide it under a bushel. We don't want to uh, neglect Your Word in any way. We want to follow after it and obey it and respond with great praise to You. Lord, You know my heart and that, that I did not intend to put people under a guilt trip or make them question their salvation. But I think as the Scriptures teach that we often need to be reminded about our worldly mindset. That we are quick to wander and turn from You and neglect Your Word and Your truth. And we need Your help. And so we admit our dependence upon You this evening and beg for Your mercy like David did and pray that You would be near us. Help us to draw near to You as You have enabled us to do so through Jesus Christ and through Your Spirit. We love You and we long to please You in every way. Help us to do that even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.